One of the things that's really interesting about what's happening is that white people and the majority is beginning to see for the first time what most of us as people of color have always known as true. We have been fighting this battle for a long, long time, but watching a man get murdered in cold blood in broad daylight in the middle of the streets of an American city, I think in the same way that seeing footage of the Vietnam War for the first time brought home to American families how ugly it actually is, this brought home to a lot of comfortable white people Maybe I shouldn't be comfortable. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. If you're committed to tackling inequality, racism, sexism, classism, ableism, at some point in undertaking this work, you'll realize that the real work begins with you. You have to address your own racist and sexist beliefs on a daily basis with the curiosity and compassion needed to transform those beliefs. This is an ongoing process. There's no gold star. As America and the world reckons with the deeply established racist structure that led to the murders of George Floyd, Ahmed Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor, each of us must confront our own role in either upholding or being on the receiving end of inequality. And this can be a painful process, but confronting your core beliefs is how you begin to heal your racism. As a white South African having grown up during apartheid, I've experienced deep shame that my identity as a member of the white community was defined by so many before me as the devaluing of others based on the color of their skin. Today's episode is a special one. It features Benjamin Merce, a composer, performer, and song leader who specializes in music of the black spiritual tradition. Benjamin is a human rights and racial justice activist, and on today's episode, you'll get a glimpse into how he uses the power of music, storytelling, and human emotion to heal racial divides. Benjamin Merce comes from a tradition of Black spiritual music. He began his journey as a musician, mostly performing inside of churches, and then as a jazz and rhythm and blues performer. He slowly transitioned into doing more music that comes from the civil rights tradition, which is where he found himself taking up social justice work. Benjamin knows firsthand the power of music and what it can do to transform people's lives in a positive way. While he comes from the Christian tradition, Benjamin does a lot of interfaith work. Here he shares more on this. I do a lot of work in interfaith spaces uh, because I believe that faith communities can really be a part of the solution when we see that so many of what we believe we have in common in terms of compassion for all human beings, uplifting of the poor and the disenfranchised. And so at interfaith events, 
everyone gets together and they want to talk about an issue. And I might have a couple of songs about that or a couple of songs that help to bring that home. And if you have a group of people who are locking hands and singing, we shall overcome, it creates something. Something happens in the bodies of people. Something happens in the hearts of people. And I think that coming from a spiritual music background, I understand that this isn't just an intellectual exercise. Human rights, social justice, freedom for human beings cannot be left in the hands solely of academic spaces. In other words, we can't just think our way towards freedom. We can't just think our way towards equity and equality. We have to be there emotionally, spiritually. We have to engage ourselves at the soul level in order to be a part of creating what we want to create in the world around us. And so that involves, for some of us, relying on things other than just making the good argument. And the good argument needs to be made. But also, sometimes you just need to throw your head back and wail and, uh, and, and sing about it a little bit too. And so, um, so my work is, is mainly around engaging people in that emotional space because we can all stand and we can be on picket lines and we can fight for our rights and you can shout and you can shout, but it means even more if you've also got a song on your lips and when you can say to those who are trying to push you back when you can say i ain't gonna let nobody turn me round or turn me round turn me round ain't gonna let nobody turn me round i'm gonna keep on a walking ha! keep on a talking ha! marching up to freedom land you can get a group of people in that space uh, you can move mountains. And so I'm a mountains mover, or at least I try to be. When it comes to tackling inequality, specifically racism, one of the hardest issues to confront is denial. Just take a look at the data on public opinions published by the Pew Research Center. In 2019, polls show that white adults are more positive about racial progress in the United States than black adults. Data also shows that 79% of Blacks, but only 32% of Whites, think that the way the criminal justice system treats minorities is a very big problem in the United States. Yet research shows that police violence is one of the leading causes of death among Black men. Black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to die from police brutality, and Black women are 1.4 times more likely than white women. Most people don't think they're racist. In fact, they believe they're reasonable people doing their part for equality. Facing this denial can be a painful process, but it's an essential starting point for tackling racism, as Benjamin explains. One of the things that's really interesting about what's happening, um, both in America and I think globally, but especially in America, is that non-black people, or rather I should say white people and the majority, is beginning to see for the first time what most of us as people of color have always known as true in the world. And this particular flashpoint, which was the murder of George Floyd, is just one in a long, long, long line of injustices and murders and lynchings that have taken place 
over the course of this country's history and of the world's history to non-white people. And so, you know, we've known this is not news to us. Our rage is not brand new. Our outrage and our battle against these kinds of injustices has been long, long going. We have a long history of people from Frederick Douglass to Fannie Lou Hamer to Langston Hughes to Martin Luther King to Medgar Evers to Malcolm X. We have been fighting this battle for a long, long time. But watching a man get murdered in cold blood in broad daylight in the middle of the streets of an American city, I think brought home in the same way that seeing footage of the Vietnam War for the first time brought home to American families how ugly it actually is. This brought home to a lot of comfortable white people. Maybe I shouldn't be comfortable if this is the world that I live in. If I live in a world where we have, for instance, black men making up about seven and a half percent of America's population and yet 40 percent of America's prison population, four zero, 40 percent of America's prison population. Maybe that means there's something wrong, not just with them, but with me, meaning as a, if you are a relatively affluent white person living in a suburb, you have one black friend, your children probably go to a school that does not have a lot of people of color in it. Segregation cuts both ways. And so there are people who live in poor segregated communities, and there are people who live in rich or middle, upper middle class segregated communities. And my argument is that both are wrong. Both dehumanize people. White supremacy from both angles, both from the angle of the oppressed and from the angle of oppressor, is wrong. And so I think in this moment, people are beginning to see that and beginning to ask, finally, what can I do to help? How can I make it better? How can I make it different? Because we have many, many millions of people who have not actually really contended with that question before. I think that a really important first step is to integrate your lives. In the United States, there were generations and generations of forced and enforced segregation. And segregation was a system here in this country that was put in place on purpose over the course of many, many, many decades, one may argue hundreds of years. What that means is that integration, reconnecting across those boundaries, recreating these communities that are integrated communities, is going to take sustained effort for generations because we need to dismantle a system that was created by sustained effort for generations. And so what is a good first step that people can take? What I love to tell folks is that a very good step is that there might be a non-white owned business somewhere in your community or nearby. Maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's a little corner shop or a bodega, maybe it's any number of things. Maybe it's an art supply store, maybe it's a hardware store start to go to these places and start to put some of your money into some of these places, make conversation with some of the folks who live there, who work there, who are in those spaces. Be willing to have your children go to a school where not everybody at the school looks like them and ask yourself the question. And these are really hard questions to ask. Ask yourself the question if you're pulling your students out of, your children out of a public school that is diverse and putting your children into a private school 
that is not diverse, in other words, segregated, are you being a part of the problem there? Are you willing to say, even though the education is quote unquote worse in this public school situation, I want to be committed to creating equity and justice. And so me and my children and my money and my energy and my time is going to be spent in helping to transform my local public school rather than escaping my local public school and putting my children in a place where they're less likely to face adversity. I can protect them. And oh, by the way, it just so happens everyone is white. One of the most important things to remember in doing the work to unlearn your racism is to know that you're not alone. We have so many teachers who've come before us and teachers today who, like Benjamin, are leading the way. Here Benjamin shares why it's so important to contemplate on whose shoulders do you stand upon. I want to begin on this concept with a quote from Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass said, America has been false to its past false to its present and is conditioning itself to be false to its future. And the important thing about structuring things in that mindset is that we have to understand what our history is and what our history actually is, and not just the history that has been taught by the winners. You know, the expression is that history is made by the winners. But another important thing is to understand if I look into my past, Who, both in my family, are the heroes who give me the strength to move on? What are the lessons that I get from within my family? And then to move that question further, who are the heroes in my history, either in my country's history or in the world's history? Upon whose shoulders do I stand? So many people say that they admire Martin Luther King and they consider Martin Luther King their personal hero. And I will also submit to you that many of those people have never once read Martin Luther King, ever. They have not read him. They don't know what he says. They have not read his books. They have not listened to his speeches. They have heard a 10-minute clip of the I Have a Dream speech, and then they have heard what some of the books and some of the politicians say about what he is. When you read King, you discover that he is an absolutely radical, transformative figure trying to shake a structure of segregation down to its knees and create out of the ashes a beautiful society of integration. If people think King is their hero. They need to read what he had to say about the world that we live in. They need to read the letter from Birmingham jail and read how disappointed he was in white moderates and in the Christian church that he belonged to in being, as he said, more interested in the absence of conflict than in the presence of justice. The people who say, oh, well, protest, but not that way. Oh, well, you can be upset about it, but not that way. There was always a reason why the protests were not appropriate or not genteel enough or not acceptable enough. And so the silent majority more interested in just not having tension in their lives than they are in the presence of justice in their lives. So when I say that I stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther King, I say that from a position of having read King and listened to his speeches and understanding this is what I'm taking out of this. I've read Malcolm X. I've read James Baldwin. I take these types of figures and I say, 
I'm going to use this to fuel my passion for being a part of the change that I believe in. These are the shoulders that I stand on, and I stand on ground that is a firm, solid foundation. And so my invitation to all people is to look back at your heroes and to say, who were these folks? Who were my heroes? Who am I aligning myself with on a continuum? Not just now looking forward, but if I look back, upon whose shoulders do I stand? Who am I the continuum of? Who am I picking up the torch from? And who am I going to carry the torch forward to? To understand that the battles won't all be won during our lifetime, just like they weren't won one or two generations ago, but that we are taking on a torch and carrying it forward. And we need to have a sense of history in order to do that. When you step into the space of confronting your own racist beliefs, it can often feel uncomfortable and painful, which is why denial is a coping strategy that many people use. Here, Benjamin shares why responsibility is the key to unlocking shame. My dear friends who are white, everything that has gone wrong in the world is not your fault. However, it is your responsibility. The fact that we live in a segregated society is not your fault. You did not build it. You personally did not build it. However, the fact that we live in a segregated society is your responsibility. Why? Because right now, you disproportionately hold the power. You hold the levers of government, you hold the money, and you hold the political power currently, disproportionately. And so within white communities, You speak exactly rightly when you say that segregation, not just in the United States, but worldwide, that segregation and income inequality and the racial disparities in income, the racial disparities in wealth. In the United States, the average white family has 10 times the wealth of the average black family. The average black family's wealth is actually declining and is set to reach zero in the next 20 to 30 years if it continues on this track because of how much debt we're in. And so if you control 10 times the wealth of the average black family, we need you to understand that you play a part in the solution. You must, you simply must. And so it's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. I'm not telling you that you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm not even telling you that you should be ashamed of your ancestors. I think that you should know if you had ancestors who were involved in small or large ways in the oppression of people, it's valuable things to know. But I'm not telling you that it's your fault. What I am telling you is that it is your responsibility and that growing up, quote unquote, sheltered, well, sheltered from what, right? Sheltered from whom? When people say they grew up sheltered, they often mean they grew up among only people who looked like themselves and didn't have to, quote unquote, worry about the troubles of the world. Well, that system is an unjust system. You actually did not grow up sheltered. You grew up segregated. You grew up in a segregated society, in a segregated neighborhood, in a segregated town, even if you're not calling it that. Not everyone grew up in apartheid South Africa or in the South in the United States, but wherever you are located, if you grew up in a segregated town, then you grew up in a segregated town and integrating your lives is your own responsibility and you really must be 
a part of that. And then to move on for a moment, part of that involves understanding where is your money being spent? What are the companies and corporations where you're spending your money? What are their practices? What are they doing in and around the world? Where are your retirement accounts being held? Because a lot of this comes down to where is the money and where is the power? And if you don't think you politically have power, you do have the money that you have. And if your money is all tied up into a banking system or into a particular type of company or a particular sector of companies, and that's where you're tying up all of your investments, and those companies are directly responsible for the destruction of black and brown people and their communities, then you have a responsibility to make better decisions with your money, with your investments. For all the black men and women who are listening to this episode, Benjamin has a reminder of all that you are. Dr. Cornell West says, how is it that a people who have experienced so much oppression and so much violence and so much terror have taught the world so much about how to love? We have love warriors in our tradition from Ella Fitzgerald to John Coltrane to Muhammad Ali to Martin Luther King, to Smokey Robinson, to Sam Cooke. We have so many love warriors in our tradition. We come from a strong and beautiful people who transform grief into love, who refuse to take up weapons. There could have been another civil war every generation. And there was not a civil war every generation because we chose not to mimic the modes and practices of the people who were killing us. Black folks never turned around and created lynch mobs to try to lynch white folks. We have a tremendous amount of moral and spiritual fortitude and resilience that we have in our history. And we can use that. We need to feel filled with that ancestral power of spiritual and moral fortitude to move forward. What I'd say to my black and brown friends is the same type of question. Know upon whose shoulders you stand. You stand upon the shoulders of giants. And you are a giant in this world and can be one. And so I don't need to tell black folks how to be resilient. They already know. If if y'all are listening, y'all already know how to be resilient and how to stand up and how to make it through today. And sometimes, as Audre Lorde said, just waking up in the morning is how I protest. I wake up in the morning and my existing is a constant protest against the system that I live in. And so we come from a blues tradition. We come from a rhythm and blues tradition. We come from a spiritual tradition. We know who we are. We know why we're here. And all we're looking for As the author Kimberly Jones said, some folks are lucky. Folks in the establishment are lucky that all we're looking for is equality and not revenge. But we are not a people of revenge. All we want is what you have. And we're going to get it. And we're going to get there. And we're going to have white allies along the way who are going to help to bring us to those places. I may not get there. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, I may not get there. But I know that we as a people will get there. And so I have confidence that we can make it. I have confidence that we are going to get there. And we will not bow down to racism. 
And we will not bow down to uh, injustice. And we will not bow down to exploitation. Cause I'm going to stand. Whoa, I'm going to stand. We're just going to stand up and keep trucking. express the gratitude I felt having Benjamin share his work on this episode. There are so many incredible teachings that all of us can use as we begin to do anti-racism work. If you want to support Benjamin or reach out to him or buy his album entitled Climbing Up the Mountain, then please check out his website at www.benjaminmerse.com. Thank you all so much for tuning in today and being a part of this incredible community. Before you go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn how gender inequality works, what the most common barriers are that women face, and how gender inequality creates challenges to men's fulfillment of work. Most importantly, you'll learn what you can do to navigate these obstacles and ultimately remove them to make workplaces work for everyone. So get your coffee today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.